Good morning. Hear the word of the Lord to us from Isaiah 62. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet. Till her righteousness shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. The nations will see your righteousness and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. No longer will they call you deserted or name your land desolate, but you will be called Hephzibah and your land Beulah, for the Lord will take delight in you and your land will be married. As a young man marries a maiden, so will your sons marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. I have posted watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They will never be silent day or night. You who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest. Give him no rest till he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm. Never again will I give your grain as food for your enemies and never again will your foreigners drink the new wine for which you have toiled. But those who harvest it will eat it and praise the Lord. And those who gather the grapes will drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Amen. Thank you. Good morning. For those of you who I don't know, especially if you're a young adult, my name is Josh Kramer. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm the young adults pastor here at Cole. I'm glad to be here this morning. If you are a young adult and uh, we define young adults here at Cole as roughly 18 to 30 single married kids or no kids, we'd love to get you plugged in. So come talk to me. If I haven't met you already, if we're not already chatting, uh, I'd love to get you plugged in and connected here at Cole, if there's a way I can do that. This weekend, the staff and elders from Cole went up to McCall, spent a weekend, a couple days together, and had a really good time. It was a, a real blessing to be together. We talked about the question, who is my neighbor, and how do we love our neighbors? So specifically, we were thinking of our neighborhood around Cole. It's an important question, who is my neighbor? That's not what I want to talk about, but that's an important thing that we could talk about. The staff and elders, you got to know this, the staff and elders really love each other. We enjoy being together. We had a great time together. We pray together, uh, enjoy one another, played some tennis, had good meals together. The most important part of staff and elder weekend, however, is the zilch game that happens, dice game. If you don't know the, the game zilch, it's a great dice game. And I happened to win this weekend. 
So I got the trophy. Thank you. This, I didn't even keep score this year. Normally I keep score, and so I do have the opportunity to cheat. Zilch, again, so you see the dice. Marianne made this awesome trophy. This is the first year of the trophy, and I'm very excited to be the champion. Uh, it plays We Are the Champions by Queen. Uh, super excited. That has nothing to do with what I'm talking about. I just wanted to gloat a little bit. <laughs> Zilch, by the way, means nothing. Like, literally zero. Anyway, what I am going to talk with you about this morning... Uh, I titled the, the sermon initially, before I had the Zilch Trophy, I titled the sermon, Looking Forward to Salvation. So that's what's on the back of your bulletins. And that's what we are doing. We're looking forward to God's salvation. I could have titled it, had I been able to foresee the future, We Are the Champions. That would have also been appropriate. Doesn't feel like it, though, does it? Doesn't feel like we're the champions all the time. Louis C.K., who's a really interesting comedian, I don't recommend that you just Google and YouTube his stuff. It's uh, some really nasty stuff. He's also not a virtuous human being. But he's very clear-eyed about several things. He says, everything is amazing and nobody's happy. It's about right. He says, we live in an amazing, amazing world, and I'm going to clean up the language a little bit for you, an amazing world, and it's wasted on a bunch of spoiled fools. We live in an amazing time, but we don't experience it as amazing. Our time and place is both the best of all places or the worst. America in the 21st century is like an amazing place to live. Our technology is solving all kinds of problems. It could solve every problem, according to some people. Uh, our liberty is expanding for more and more people. We think we have the... Um, we, ha we do have the audacity to go tell other nations how they ought to live and be more like us and be better. America in the 21st century is incredible. It's also a terrible place to live and completely falling apart. Morals are falling off the map. Nobody can get along with one another. Our media, which is the way we talk to one another, is all fake and wrong. We live in the best of times and the worst of times. To misquote Dickens. It's confusing to live in this world. We have a ton of pride in all we've accomplished. Our buildings, our technology, our ideologies. And we have a ton of despair. Like, this place is totally irredeemable and there's nothing to be done. How are we going to live? Pride and despair together. Arrogance and hopelessness. In our passage today, Isaiah's audience is in not too dissimilar a place. The people had come back to Jerusalem, but they're, and so they were happy about that. They take pride in the fact that they live in Jerusalem. At the same time, they look around Jerusalem, and it's not quite the place they had hoped for. They know that Jerusalem's glory days are way behind them. They look around, and one of the prophets it says, they wept when the temple was rebuilt, not because they were so excited, but because it was so pathetic compared to the previous temple. Jerusalem was made for more than they were living in at the moment. We were made for more than we're living in right now. In our passage, Isaiah is giving confused, uncertain people a picture of everything that they were made for. In the light of our future, the things we take pride in are kind of like zilch trophies 
and the things that we despair about, God's going to take care of them. There is no place for either pride or despair or to see our place as the climax of human progress or as an irredeemable disaster. It's neither of those. Instead, God invites us to trust in Him, to put our faith in Him, to keep looking forward to our final salvation where we will live in beautiful intimacy with Him in a city where sin and death and vice have been removed. Let's pray and then dig into this passage together. Father, we give you thanks for all that you have given to us. You've given us your word and you've given us your son and you've given us your spirit and you brought us into a community, the church, which you are making into a beautiful bride and a new city where you're going to fulfill all of your promises. You're going to make us everything that you intended when you created us. We give you thanks and praise today. Father, by your spirit, would you encourage us as we look at your word together? Would you continue to shape us and would you draw us together as a people to be that beautiful bride, righteous bride, and that beautiful uh, city fully functioning for your glory? We love you and we praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen. So as a little bit of background, we are nearing the end of a two-year journey through Isaiah. We're in 62 and 63 this morning. There are 66 chapters in Isaiah. So we're right in the next few weeks, next month and a half, we will be done with the book of Isaiah. We've gone through the whole thing. And, and this part of Isaiah, Isaiah is writing to the people of Jerusalem 150 years into the future, or almost 200 years in, into his future, to the people of Jerusalem after they come back from the exile. Isaiah and the Lord through Isaiah wants to give these people encouragement. They're living in a chaotic time of discouragement, but he wants to give them hope in the future. Things look bad now, and you may think things have been better in the past, but remain faithful to him because he is going to do absolutely amazing things in your future because of his love for you. So he gives Isaiah this vision in three different images. So in 62, 1 to 5, the first image, he talks about Jerusalem as the bride the bride of the Lord. He's going to marry Jerusalem. The second image in 62, 6 to 12, he says, you're going to be a well-designed and beautiful city. So bride and then city. And then third in 63, 1 to 6, he says, you will witness God's vengeance against evil. So these images together add up to the coherent picture. Our final salvation is going to blow away everything that we experience today. All the best stuff about us is nothing compared to what's coming. And all the worst stuff will be destroyed, he says. Okay, as Christians, I, want, uh, I think we can think about this in three ways. Th these promises will be fulfilled in three uh, stages, a threefold Fulfillment of this promise, this set of promises. So first, when Jerusalem actually comes back into the city, is the first fulfillment. So in Israel's history, we see a kind of partial but very unsatisfying fulfillment. This is clearly not the full fulfillment of all of this. Second, as Christians again, we can see Christ as a mostly partial fulfillment of this promise as well. 
Jesus, in his death, uh, defeats sin, and then he brings together a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to be the bride, his bride. Revelation tells us that in his death, he won for himself a people to be his bride. So that is a mostly, but not quite full, fulfillment of this promise, set of promises. And then we can look further into the future when he returns and and, uh, establishes the kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth, when this will all be fully fulfilled. So we're going to try and look and focus mostly on those last two. Christ's first coming, a life, death, and resurrection, and then his second coming, when all this will be fully fulfilled. And we see that John, when he writes the book of Revelation, which we're going to study this summer together, by the way, and so um, keep thinking of Revelation as we uh, go through this passage, John picks up these images and talks about us as a bride and a city that uh, come together and and, uh, uh, fulfill these, these images after the judgment. Okay, so let's look at these together. We're going to look at the bride first, verses 1 to 5. And we don't have time to deal with all of the details. There's a lot in here. And there's some really interesting questions I'd love to wrestle with you. Uh, later, if you see things that uh, that I didn't get to, fair enough. Um, so, bride. First, Isaiah tells Jerusalem, "For Zion's sake, I won't keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I won't be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness, her salvation as a burning torch." Why does God use this image of bride to talk about His people? Because He wants to make us righteous as people of salvation and glory, he wants to make us beautiful. He wants to make us an attraction to the nations. We are shining with righteousness, salvation, and glory. We're attractive, like a bride is beautiful. And that's not with our own righteousness. It's not like we saved ourselves. But by his work in us, he is making us righteous. He's bringing us salvation. He's making us glorious for his own glory. Again, we're moving quick, but the next piece, verse 3, 62-3, you shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, or a crown of splendor, and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. God talks about us as a bride because he wants us to participate in his royalty. You marry the king, you get to be the queen. We, as a bride, collectively get to be queen in the new Jerusalem, queen of the new heavens and new earth. It's kind of an amazing image. He wants us to participate with him. We are not a trophy wife or a yes man to God. He is making us into the kind of people, collective people together that get to rule with him. Like God made Eve for Adam so that they could rule over creation together, we get to participate with God in ruling over the new creation. It's an amazing invitation. Moving on. You'll no longer be called forsaken, verse 4. And your land will no longer be called desolate, but you shall be called Hephzibah, and your land Beulah, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. Hephzibah means, my delight is in her. Beulah means married. This is intimate language. God delights in us as a people. God wants intimacy with us. He wants to be close with us, closely connected 
with us. And then verse 5, a young man marries a young woman, so your sons shall marry you. The bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. He's rejoicing over us. He's not disappointed in his wife. He's excited. He's rejoicing like a bridegroom. Okay, all of this together, in summary, I want us to see this picture of the church as a bride made to be God's appropriate partner, fit for him, a suitable helper, we might say. He's picking up, I think, the image uh, from Adam and Eve's marriage. God made Eve to be a suitable helper for Adam, to rule with him, to help name the animals, to care for creation, to cultivate the, new, the, the creation. God wants the same thing out of his church. He is making us a suitable helper for him to help rule over the new creation. Which is amazing because we're nothing like a suitable helper to God right now. Nothing even closely resembling that. But by the blood of Jesus, making us righteous, the Holy Spirit sanctifying us, he is making us into a suitable helper for him. Let's talk about marriage just for a little bit. Marriage between God and the new Jerusalem, the bride, is the real marriage. And human marriages are awesome because they reflect and participate in that real marriage, the future one that's coming. It's kind of like, the the analogy breaks down, so listen critically to this analogy, but it's kind of like my girls playing at being married or playing wedding Sometimes at home, I have three girls, um, and sometimes I get to be the groom. Sometimes I get to um, officiate the wedding, and sometimes the dog is the groom. (laughs) My girls playing at wedding, playing at marriage, is kind of like, in the analogy, my girls playing to human marriages is kind of like human marriages to God's marriage. Like the really real marriage is God's marriage, Christ's marriage to the bride. Our marriages are holy and special and unique as they participate in and reflect the intimacy beauty of that marriage. But we're not, our human marriages aren't the real, real marriages. They participate in his marriage to us. And I want to say that because I want to point out Sometimes we talk like, and in the church we do, I think we do this a little too much. Sometimes we talk like marriage, human marriage, is God's ultimate best thing for us. And it's not. Marriage is hard and disappointing and full of loneliness and full of sin. Every marriage is. If we talk like human marriage is God's very best for us, then hard marriages, people who struggle through hard marriages might be alienated by that. Or people who are single can be alienated by that kind of language. It's not, human marriage is not the very best that God has for us. He has something far better. Human marriage is a picture. And so the very best moments of human marriage, multiply that by a million. And then you can picture God's very best for us. God's best for us is still to come. So if you experience pain or loneliness in your marriages, I'm sorry, that's painful. 
we all experience pain and loneliness in our marriages. Grace and I, even in our very most intimate, best moments, there's still loneliness there. There's still sadness, longing for something else. God's going to give us that something else when we fully experience the marriage, marriage to him. He didn't create, by the way, he did not create marriage to answer our deepest longings or fix our loneliness or our sin. He created marriage so that he might be glorified and revealed and so that he might draw us deeper into intimacy with him. As a note, singleness, like marriage, is special and unique and holy. Paul was single. Jesus was single. So if you're single, I want to encourage you to think of yourself and to act as a gift to the church and a unique expression of God's care and purpose. The church needs one another. The church needs you in your singleness. And I just want to say today that we honor you as a full member of Christ's bride in your intimacy with him as you are single. Another note real quick. I hope this will be quick. I know I've had this conversation a couple of times. Some men I know don't connect with this image of the church being the bride. Fair enough. There might be a lot of reasons why you might not connect. And I, a lot of them might be good reasons. But I just want to ask the question. This is not an accusation. It's a question, genuine question. But could some of that be about either male pride or privilege in being male or about insecurity in your manhood? I, I just invite you to take that to Jesus. If you want to talk about that, I'd love to chat with you. Um, but if you deal with pride in being a man, it's kind of like uh, celebrating a zilch trophy. Like, yes, God gave you that, but that's not everything, right? We don't need to take pride in being a man. We don't need to act in privileged ways because uh, those of us who are men are men. We get the chance to have intimacy with Jesus. We can be more like Jesus. So let's do that. Men and women together and individually can be more like Jesus. Let's do that rather than taking pride. Again, it's kind of like a zilch trophy, which plays music, which is awesome. Men and women are both uniquely and together amazing creations of God because we were made by him and made in his image. You and I were made just as God wanted to make us. And together as a spirit-empowered, spirit-formed community brought together by Christ's blood, we together will be the bride of Christ. Women and men, those who struggle with their gender and gender identity, slaves and free, black and white, refugee and Euro-immigrant and Native American and Arab and Jew and Asian and African, people from every tribe and tongue and nation and people. Because of what Christ has done in drawing us together, we will all together be the one bride. There are a whole bunch of questions that I would love, I love thinking about, but I have no answers for when it comes to this bride imagery. What does it actually look like that we're his bride together? I, I don't know. Uh, how does our sexuality work in eternity? I can't tell you. Jesus tells us that we won't be married or given in marriage in eternity. I mean, except to him. So what will our relationships with one another look like? I don't know. We will have real and meaningful intimacy with one another. But how? I don't know. 
Again, we're going to look at this all together this summer as we study Revelation. So hopefully uh, the team will come up with all the answers by then. But if not, uh, it gives me some things to think about in my daydreams. But in the meantime, know this. God delights in you as an individual person and he delights in us as his collective bride. He loves all of us. He wants intimacy with all of us. He's excited to make us all beautiful, to attract the nations to himself, to make us a royal and righteous partner suitable to him. We will have perfect intimacy with him. We will be perfectly loved and cared for by him. We will get all that we want out of relationship with him. He will never betray us or abuse us or mistreat us. And the passion will always be there. It's an amazing promise to us that he is in the process of fulfilling. So today we can let our righteousness shine and let the salvation that the Lord gives us be the lamp that we show off to the world. Okay, so bride, we collective, bride. Second image, starting in verse 6, we collective are a city. What does Isaiah say about this city? Well, starting in 6 and 7, He says, on your walls, O Jerusalem, so 62, starting in verse 6. On your walls, Jerusalem, I've set watchmen all day and all night. They shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. So there will be walls like functional walls and watchmen on the walls. And what are the watchmen doing? They're annoying God. It says, God made promises. Your job as watchman is to annoy him so much that he fulfills the promises. Don't let him rest, is what Isaiah says. These are the prayers of the Psalms. These are the prayers of the, the saints under the altar in Revelation. These are the people of God praying the Lord's prayer, essentially. How long until you let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? So in our prayer life, we are functioning as the watchman. Again, we're moving too quickly, but I got to move on. Verse eight, I won't again give your grain to be food for your enemies and foreigners won't drink your wine for which you've labored. Grain and wine. In other words, there's going to be a functioning economy in this city. Things to do and and people to do them and it's going to work for the people. We're not going to be exporting all of our best stuff. It's going to come and like feed us. And there's some thinking there to do that I haven't quite yet done about the fact that it's grain and wine, which is the stuff of communion. But we'll be drinking and eating in the sanctuary together. It says, verse 9, those who garner it, the grain and the wine, shall eat it and they'll praise the Lord. Those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. We'll have a fully functional religious life as well. And then in 10 to 12, it talks about the gates. Build up the gates. Go through the gates. Prepare the highway. Clear it of stones. We're going to have a fully functional city. There's going to be a full culture in this city. There's going to be economics, religious life, defined boundaries. There's going to be a highway to go in and out. So salvation, our final salvation, does not mean sitting on clouds playing harps unless you are a harp player, then good on you. But that's not going to be all of us. We're going to be functioning, cultivating life. 
We're going to be participating with God as he cultivates life in the new creation. So like that, that thought experiment, what would you do if you won millions of dollars and you never had to work again? That thing that you would want to do, you're going to get to do that. So like if you're a researcher, you're going to get to research and like learn more and more about God. If you're uh, in agriculture, you get to like plant and grow stuff that serves the people of God. I'm thinking of Adrienne right now. So if you're new or you don't know, uh, our worship pastor, Adrienne, is retiring this summer. And I just can't imagine that in retirement, she's going to sit around twiddling her thumbs. Right. If you know Adrienne, she's my mother-in-law. I know her fairly well. She's going to be doing more of what she already does. In life today, we are stuck with all kinds of constraints, time constraints, miscommunication, sin, all this stuff that holds us back from being everything we, God created us to be. In a similar way, Adrienne has time constraints. She's got to try and please like so many different people. And she's constrained in retirement, like less time constraints. She doesn't have to please anyone. She's going to be like, I I imagine she's going to be creating new worship that is going to be exciting for all of us. She's going to be more of herself without some of the limitations. In the same way, in the new creation, we will be more of ourselves. We're not going to be less. We're going to be more of ourselves. Fully lived out in worship to God. I can't tell you how excited all of that makes me. We will get to participate with God in cultivating life in the new creation without the sin that gets in the way now. So for now, be who God made you to be. Also give yourself grace. The reality is, like, we're constrained. You're not going to be able to be everything that God made you to be right now. Grace heard this from a friend who was helping her think through what it means to be a mom right now. The friend said, be all that God made you to be, but you don't have to be all of it right now. In the new creation, we will get to be all of it in an amazing, beautiful way. Uh, Just to make note of this, Grace and I have lots of good, meaningful relationships. We would love to get to know so many more of you so much better than we have the chance to now. We're just constrained by time. It's not desire or anything else. We love getting to know people. But the reality is we're just... There's not enough time to get to know everyone that we would love to get to know. In the new Jerusalem, in the new creation, we're going to get to know all of each other really, really well. We're going to have eternity to get to do that. Okay, so God is making us into a beautiful royal intimate bride, which is also a functioning and vibrant, cultivating, culture-making city. The third image Isaiah gives us starts in chapter 63, verse 1. This image of judgment or God's vengeance. 63.1 Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It's I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. What does salvation look like? Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? And God answers, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their blood splattered on my garments and stained my apparel. God is trampling out the nations, and it's such a bloody thing that his white garments have turned red. 
God is exacting vengeance on the enemies of God's people. In order to save his people, God must stand against all that threatens his people. So wrath, God's wrath, is of a piece. It's a part of God's love. Compelled by love, he must act in judgment and vengeance. In other words, if God doesn't answer the watchman, if he doesn't bring justice, we have a right to question, are you fully loving? His wrath against the oppressor, the warlord, the persecutor, the abuser, the rapist, is his love working on behalf of the oppressed, the victim of war, the persecuted, the abused, those who suffer rape. Too often, I think, we see these pitted against each other, wrath versus love. And in places of the world where we're comfortable, we choose love. And so we don't, sometimes don't talk enough about God's wrath. Versus in parts of the world where suffering is common, there's a crying out. Lord, when are you going to change this? When are you going to take care of all the evil in the world? When are you going to deal with this? When is your judgment coming? The Psalms are full of this language. How long are you going to put up with this, O Lord? The wrath of God and the love of God are one in God. But how we see that played out is not what we might have been led to expect if we only had Isaiah 63. In the New Testament, um, God tells us that our enemies are not flesh and blood. The New Testament tells us that the real enemies are the powers of this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 6. Sin and death and evil and chaos, those are our real enemies. And so the Lord acts. He works to save. Verse 5, we'll look at this uh, more in depth. Verse 5, the Lord says, I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation and my wrath upheld me, it says. He looks around the world. He sees that all are evil. There is none who does good, not even one. And so he pours out blood in order to save his people. But look again, there was none to help So my own arm brought salvation or accomplished salvation for me. The stretched out arms of the Lord carries out the saving work. We didn't do our job. And so God accomplished the whole thing on his own. He did our work for us by sending his son to die in our place. Jesus' work on the cross accomplishes God's saving work. His cloak is drenched and stained by blood, yes, but it's His blood. His arms stretched out on the cross defeats the powers of this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil, by His death and resurrection. Jesus has conquered all enemies so that He could establish a new creation, a new Jerusalem, so that He might live in intimacy with us. It's an amazing salvation that He accomplishes. He came for us weak, ugly, confused sinners and gave himself up for us so that we might have life and not just life, but in the end, we get life and intimacy with him as his beautiful, righteous bride. He is worthy of all our worship and all our praise. 
He is the answer to all of our deepest wants and longings. He is the groom who takes us in our pride and insecurity and ugliness and turns us into a beautiful and royal bride. Somehow, by his grace, fit for him, a helper suitable for him. Because of Jesus, by his death and resurrection and in his return, we have the possibility of life far beyond what we experience now. Praise God. We have the chance for life just as God made us to live it in intimacy with him, living out our full created selves without sin or death or any other enemy in our way. It's an amazing picture. We do not need to settle for pride in zilch trophies or in despair over a world that we can't fix. I want to finish by quoting an amazing story by Flannery O'Connor. If you don't know Flannery O'Connor, she was an amazing author. Um, She told uh, violent and really incredible stories uh, that point us to Jesus and shock us out of our complacency. Uh, This story called Revelation, I've always found really moving. It's about Mrs. Turpin, who's a very self-satisfied, proud woman. And she's, Mrs. Turpin is out in the field watching the sunset as she uh, stands and looks at her uh, pigs. Until the sun slipped finally behind the tree line, Mrs. Turpin remained there with her gaze bent to them, that is to her pigs, as if she were absorbing some abysmal life-giving knowledge. At last she lifted her head. There was only a purple streak in the sky cutting through a field of crimson and leading like an extension of the highway into the descending dusk. She raised her hands from the side of the pen in a gesture hieratic and profound. A visionary light settled in her eyes. She saw the streak as a vast swinging bridge extending upward from the earth through a field of living fire. Upon it, a vast horde of souls were tumbling toward heaven. There were whole companies of white trash clean for the first time in their lives and bands of blacks in white robes and battalions of freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs. And bringing up the end of the procession was a tribe of people whom she recognized at once as those who, like herself and Claude, her husband, had always had a little of everything and the given wit to use it right. She leaned forward to observe them closer. They were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they had always been for good order and common sense and respectable behavior. They alone were on key. Yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces, even their virtues were being burned away. She lowered her hands and gripped the rail of the hog pen, her eyes small but fixed unblinkingly on what lay ahead. In a moment, the vision faded, but she remained where she was. At length, she got down and turned off the faucet and on her slow way on the darkening path to the house. In woods around her, the invisible cricket choruses had struck up. But what she heard were the voices of the souls climbing upward into the starry field and shouting, Hallelujah. Our vices and our virtues are being burned off of us. All that stuff that we take pride in is no more than a zilch trophy and will be nothing compared to the awesome glory that we have when we live in the new Jerusalem, the new heaven and the new earth because of Jesus' death 
in defeating sin and death, his work in us, we will get to live intimately with God and with one another in an amazing city, shouting hallelujahs in tune or out of tune forever. So hallelujah to our God who made us and is fulfilling his purposes for us. Hallelujah to our Lord who draws us into his love and will have intimacy with us. Hallelujah to him who takes us in our ugliness and turns us into beautiful and useful cultivators of a new creation. Hallelujah to Jesus who defeats sin and death by his death on the cross. Hallelujah to Jesus whose life, death, and resurrection judge evil and save his people so that we might have life in him. Let's pray. Father, hallelujah. We're amazed by the the salvation that you work for us. You're turning us into people that we don't deserve to be. You're turning us into beautiful, righteous bride. You're turning us into a meaningful, cultivated, life-giving city. And you're doing this because you've accomplished judgment by sending your son to die on a cross for us. We're amazed at your grace and your love for us. We praise you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Continue your work in us. Continue sanctifying us to make us that righteous bride. We love you, Father, Son, and Spirit. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.